I've had. Hope you've had as good a day as I have. Spending time with my brothers and sisters. And uh, so thankful that I'm a child of God. I'm thankful that you are. One of the reasons is because that makes you my brother. That makes you my sister. It's so wonderful to know all across this country and all around the world. We have brothers and sisters. We have family. And uh, great to be here tonight, and I'm excited about our study. As our brother mentioned in prayer, in addition to wanting to honor God and sing praises to Him, we're here because we want to be able to change ourselves for the better. We never get tired of trying to find ways that we can get more like Jesus, that we can honor Him more, that we can be more effective. We can uh, bless one another more. I think the topic tonight is simple enough, and we're going to address it in enough detail that you'll have something you can really grab a hold on to and that will help you in your daily walk. What single biblical principle, if understood and daily kept before our minds, would number one, Eliminate marital strife, unfaithfulness, and divorce. Number two, repair relationships within congregations and between congregations. Number three, what principle, we really got it and we could keep it before our minds daily, would prevent moral and doctrinal compromise. And number four, what principle will help within us to generate and sustain evangelistic zeal? The principle that I have in mind is placing ourselves, keeping ourselves upon the altar. A lot of times when we think of the word altar, we think Old Testament. But in reality, the Holy Spirit presents an altar as very much a New Testament reality. I'm reminded of the lyrics of the song with this title. Remember, it came up the first time I heard it in Joyful Sounds in the late 70s, maybe early 80s. I'm all upon the altar, blessed Savior divine. Just take me now and make me thine own. This world with all its pleasures now I gladly resign. Come in my heart and make it thy throne. While kneeling now before thee, blessed Savior, today, come in my heart and fill me with love. Take all my bent for sinning and my sorrow away. Make me fit for heaven above. Oh, make of me thy temple, pure and holy within, a place where thou canst sweetly abide. Oh, make me new and use me in the saving of men, to thee my all in all I confide. All upon the altar, blessed Savior divine, come in and freely sit on thy throne. Just use me in thy service, for I truly am thine. Then take me up to heaven, my home. These words, of course, are rooted in the climax of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Rome. 
where he says in Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What beautiful words. How often do we associate the Christian life with sacrifice? I think we have a tendency to turn the, way, the page away from sacrifices, don't we? We need to keep the image of sacrifices before our minds, even now that we're living under the New Testament. In preparing for this study, I came across an interesting article on NBC.com titled, Animal Sacrifice at Temple Powered Ancient Jerusalem's Economy. And when we go through this article, you know, maybe with the thought, your thing is, well, yeah, we get this. Especially if you're somebody who's been a Christian for some years and you've spent a lot of time in God's Word, you just know this is like second nature. But we're living in a time where people just don't know we're living in a supposedly Christian country. But people don't understand and they start to doubt some of these fundamental teachings of the Bible that archaeology establishes what it's just like the Bible says. The article reads in part, Pilgrims came from hundreds of miles away to sacrifice animals at an ancient temple in Jerusalem. New research suggests an analysis of bones found in an ancient dump in the city dating back 2,000 years revealed that animals sacrificed at the temple came from far and wide. The study shows that there is a major interprovincial market that enables the transfer of vast numbers of animals that are used for sacrifice and feasting in Jerusalem during that time period, says Study co-author Gideon Hartman, a researcher at the University of Connecticut. The finding published in the September issue of the Journal of Archaeological Science confirms visions of the temple depicted in historical Jewish texts and suggests the economic heart of the city was its slaughtering operation. I don't know about you, but we talk about sacrifice a lot, but I don't think of slaughtering as being so central to what was going on. The article goes on. At that time, Jerusalem was a bustling metropolis without any natural economic resources as it was landlocked and far from most major trade routes. According to the Talmud, a Jewish religious text, the city's economic heart was the holy temple, the only place where Israelites could sacrifice animals as offerings to God. Some passages in the text depict priests wading up to their knees in blood, and others describe 1.2 million animals being slaughtered on one day. The ancient Jewish historian Flavius Josephus also describes an enormous slaughtering operation. But historians wondered whether these descriptions were hyperbolic or fact. A few years ago, archaeologists unearthed a massive dump on the outskirts of the old walled city of Jerusalem. Dating revealed the dump was used between the start of King Herod's reign and 37 B.C. and A.D. 66. Whereas most city dumps contain animal bones, this one contained an unusually large proportion of them for an agricultural society, Hartman said. And most of the animals were young, suggesting they were raised for sacrifice. 
The study found that many of the animals found in the city dove came from rural desert regions hundreds of miles away, such as Arabia or Transjordan. over and over again. I love archaeology because it does that so many times and in so many ways. When you think of sacrificial offerings, what comes to mind? I don't know about you, but the first thing that comes to my mind is Passover. I think about Exodus 12, that yearly sacrifice that was established in commemoration of God's people being set free from Egyptian bondage. We also find the details of it amidst uh, a listing of all, or at least a lot of the sacrifices that took place in Jerusalem in Numbers 28 and Numbers 29. I'm going to read all of this, but go back and look at it and study it a little bit more closely. I'm going to break down basically what was happening there. They had the daily sacrifices in the morning. And then towards the evening, at twilight, read about that in Numbers 28, verse 3 through 8. So, you figure, okay, 365 days daily sacrifice, right? Times two sacrifices, 730 sacrifices. Then you keep reading in the chapter, verse 9 and 10, you read about the weekly sacrifice. Well, there were two of those. 52 weeks Times two, that's uh, 104. Four sacrifices. They're doing a lot of killing. They're shedding a lot of blood. And you read a little bit further, verses 11 through 15, and now you're reading about the monthly sacrifice. There were 11 of those. 12 times 11, that's uh, about 132, I believe. And uh, then you read a little bit further, verse 16 through 25. And here we read about the Passover. And there were to be, when it's all added, it comes together, to 77 animal sacrifices during the celebration of the Passover. As you read through that text, it seems a little bit wordy when you're trying to break it down. That's what I came up with. Then verse 26 through 31, you have the Feast of Weeks. And here's more. 11 more sacrifices. Now some of these are Lambs, and some of these are bulls, and some of these are goats, and some of these are rams. Then you read a little bit further, and you read about the Feast of the Trumpets. And here you have a bull, a ram, a goat, and seven lambs. So there's another ten. Then they got the, the, uh, the Day of Atonement, Numbers 29, verse 7 through 11. You got one bull, one ram, one goat, seven lambs. There's another ten. Then you got the Feast of the Tabernacles. Here you got 71 bulls, 15 rams, eight goats, and 105 lambs. When you add it all up, every year, 1,093 lambs. This included, there were additional sacrifices that could voluntarily be offered, but these were the mandatory requirements. 1,093 lambs. 113 bulls, 37 rams, and 30 goats. During the year, 1,273 sacrifices is what I come up with. I, I, I read Jameson Ross Austin Brown, and somehow with their numbers, they came up with 1,242. I don't think it's important we get the 
exact number precise, but there's a point here. There was a whole lot of bloodshed. There was a whole lot of sacrificing going on. And then, what happened? It comes to an abrupt stop right about A.D. 70, as that article we referenced, they said, looks like it ends about A.D. 67 is when uh, that took place. Well, it ends there about 40 years after Jesus died on the cross. And the Jews, you know, they still observe the Passover. And some of those Jews are, are, are quite uh, devoted to what they consider as their religion. And some of them are still looking for the Messiah. But you know what? It's not happening. They're not having any animal sacrifices in Jerusalem. And they're not going to be doing it where they did in the past. You know why? Because there's a big Muslim building stationed right where they need to do it. Jesus came and took on flesh largely so he could become a sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice. And bring an end to all this bloodshed. All of these animal sacrifices. John, you remember, John 1 verse 29 said, Behold, speaking of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Two-legged Lamb. He's talking about me here. The Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Let's reread Romans 12 verse 1. Try to keep some of this background information in your minds as we come back to the New Testament and the Scripture. This one brief Scripture that relates to so much from the past. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Let's face it. My generation and those younger, maybe some a little bit older, we don't know much about sacrifice. Do we? We're all about freedom and comfort and convenience. And if we see anything that looks like a sacrifice, man, we're running as fast as we can away from it. We want to get away from anything that looks like sacrifice. Hasn't Satan capitalized on this strong preference for ease over sacrifice? And even hasn't it become like an expectation? And that what we're all after is that, you know, live the American dream? And Satan has lulled us away from some of those demonstrations of dedication that's going to come in all of our lives under pressure. We'll make the right choice. People familiar with history, however, understand the connection between freedom and sacrifice. Sometimes you hear the saying, freedom isn't free. Well, it's certainly the case when it comes to spiritual issues. Freedom, our freedom is not free. We understand that principle. In American history, 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence. Well, that's wonderful. Freedom. Their conviction resulted in untold sufferings for themselves and their families. Of the 56, five were captured by the British and tortured till they died. 
Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or from the hardships of the war. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planner and trader, saw his ships sunk by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts and then died in poverty. At the Battle of Yorktown, the British General Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson's home for his headquarters. Nelson told General George Washington to open fire on his home. The home was destroyed. Nelson died bankrupt. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled running. Can you imagine the scene? For their lives. His fields and mill were destroyed. For over a year, he lived in forests and caves, returning home only to find his wife had died. He never found his children. A few weeks later, he died from exhaustion. Sacrifice. We don't know much about it. And we as Christians, we need to know a little bit more about it. There are Christians in different, different places who know it to a much greater degree probably than we'll ever experience it. But what Paul wrote to the church at Rome was not just for the Christians at Rome in the 50s A.D. When we read, present your bodies a living sacrifice, we should do so with an awareness of the many, many sacrifices under the law of Moses that pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made. While sacrifices under the law took place at specified times, you know, there's the daily sacrifice, and then there's the weekly, and then there's the monthly, and then there's all the different celebrations, the different uh, feast days, and a certain amount of sacrificing was supposed to go on at that time. God presents us as Christians to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And that's supposed to happen if nobody told us when we come up from that watery grave and we're supposed to continue doing that until that day when we're lowered down into that grave of dirt. That's who we're supposed to be. If we don't get that from this book, then we missed the whole message. As I look back over my life, I've been a Christian 38 years. I'm not focused on that as much as I should. Not in my teaching, but not in my own personal life. And so I'm writing on my planner one word. Altar. If I can remember that, and if we can remember altar or the word sacrifice and who we are, isn't that going to make us a little bit more the way we ought to be? Isn't that going to help us change for the better? Again, we offer worship to God in a prescribed way, Acts 2.42. And on a prescribed day, Acts 20, verse 7, but God demands more of me than that. I'm not done with my obligations to God when I leave the church building on Sunday morning. No. The Lord expects me to present my body to Him as a living sacrifice 
24 hours a day, seven days a week. Do we get that? Tonight? Have you embraced that idea? You're not going to be, I'm not going to be what I need to be until we get there. The Jews certainly had a hard time letting go this transition from Judaism to Christianity, the ones that even were converted. And that's why we have and we're blessed with the book of Hebrews. You see, the Jewish sacrificial system under the old law was never intended to be an end in itself. It was primarily a teaching tool. It was, a, it was like training wheels. What did it teach us? Because the sin has consequences that there's a law of sin and death. You sin, you die. Somebody's got to die. When somebody sins, something or somebody has got to die. Man must pay his sin debt with the shedding of blood. And ultimately, animal sacrifices didn't cut it. With this backdrop, now go into Hebrews 10 with me. I'm not going to read all this passage. We read this sometimes, just going through our reading. And I don't get the visuals of the animal sacrifices in the past. This study has helped me. Verse 1, and its significance and the change. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these sacrifices, same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, thousands and thousands make those who approach perfect. They did all that and it still didn't get them where they need to be. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. If it was good enough, then Jesus would have had to die on the cross. We just all need to be converted to Judaism. But it didn't get the job done. For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Got the same problem. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Verse 8. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor have pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. It's like the Jews got stuck and think that this is the end all. He said, no. No. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He, Jesus, takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified, set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily. See, we know it had to be before A.D. 70. Because he's talking about something that's going on still. It was still happening. They were still offering those animal sacrifices. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. Which can never take away sins. He's saying, wake up. This isn't it. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice... For sins forever sat down at the right hand of God. Anybody says today, when they assemble at any kind of a church, we're going to offer him again, is contradicting the word of God. But this man, verse 12, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Think about all of those lambs all of that blood that was shed 
didn't get the job done. And then this one man with his sacrifice, far more effective, finally effective where those were not. Now, verse 18, where this there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. It's over. But let's back up. After recently rereading the impressive faith demonstration of Abraham offering up Isaac in Genesis 22, I thought of the practical, powerful, pivotal, biblical principle of sacrifice. Sacrifice was nothing new. But in light of his faith and appreciation of God's merciful kindness, God on this day expected Abraham in obedient faith to show he loved God supremely and trusted God completely. How? By offering up as a sacrifice not a mere animal, but his only son. If you have a child, you're going to understand a little bit better what Abraham went through that day. If you have a son who has died or a son who you thought was going to die, you know a little bit more about what this was like for Abraham. Remember when Joey was 15, got a staph infection, they gave him a very, it was a standard antibiotic, but he was fiercely allergic to it. Took, we took him to the hospital, and the hospital in town, they couldn't figure it out. They said, we, they made a couple guesses, and they said, we gotta, we got to put him on a helicopter and send him to Little Rock Children's. And you can imagine, as a 15-year-old, he's scared, didn't know, the doctors don't know what's going on, and I don't know how to get our helicopter. Yes, Louise. been in that situation with the child, then you got a little bit of an understanding of what it's like, what it was like for Abraham. A little bit of what it was like for the father to offer up his son. Note though, as crucial as it is to show mercy to others, this is taught throughout the scriptures, Abraham's obedience had to come before mercy, even towards his only son the promised son through whom Abraham anticipated God's prophecy to bless all nations. Meanwhile, there's the subtle suggestion that God also expected Isaac to demonstrate obedient faith by doing what? Presenting his body a living sacrifice. Surely Abraham choked up, or at least he was a real tough guy maybe, just swallowed hard during the interaction in Genesis 22, remember verse 7, that Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb? For the offering? That'd be tough. Remember, Abraham was about 120. I've heard scholars guesstimate between 15 to 25. Uh, so that would make Abraham 115 to 125 years old. So Isaac could very easily have either overpowered or outrun his father. Instead, he chose in faith 
to submit to Abraham, and in so doing, to submit to God, and he presented his body a living sacrifice. Isaac, as far as Abraham was concerned, he didn't know how it was going to all work out. He told the fellows that he left just a little bit ago. He says, we're coming back. He didn't know exactly how that was going to work out. But as far as he was concerned, God had told him to sacrifice, and he was going to sacrifice that only son that he waited for so long through whom all the nations of the earth and his descendants were to be blessed. But the angel stopped. Abraham and the Lord provided a ram in the thicket to take Isaac's place. Figuratively speaking, you know what happened? Figuratively speaking, Isaac died. Yeah, he died, figuratively speaking. Hebrews 11, 19 reads, Abraham concluded God was able to raise Isaac up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. As a result of this sacrificial offering, God in turn extended mercy to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to all of their descendants, and now through Christ, to all of us. Jesus, though, Isaac was the first. Jesus was the second man to present his body a living sacrifice. A little bit different. A little bit bigger, a little bit better. A lot better. A lot bigger. His sacrifice differed materially from Isaac because Jesus was human, but he never sinned. He was a sinless sacrifice. And his father was God. Jesus is a living sacrifice, and then after his one-time offering, he arose to live evermore. None of those other lambs, when they were sacrificed, they were done. It was over. But the Lamb of God, this Lamb, living sacrifice. Hebrews 7, 25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The humble submission of Isaac and Jesus provides a backdrop to the demands the Spirit places on me and on you in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Really, when you open up to Romans 12 verse 1, you're looking at the second half beginning of the book. Everything else, this therefore, as I understand it, takes into consideration everything that's been addressed in those first 11 chapters. Based on that, obviously, God can tell us whatever, but He has established by how far over and above He has gone to ask us to do what He asks us to do in verse 1. After all He has done for us, Certainly, he can ask 
for us to present our bodies a living sacrifice. The message is get on the altar, brother. Get on the altar, sister. And then, from Romans 12, verse 1, he begins to share the responsibilities and the obligations that we're to take on ourselves based on all the blessings that we've been given. I mean, in relationships, you know, when somebody does something really nice for you and then does something again really nice for you and a nice, a nice, a nice, a nice, th nice thing, a kindness, a generosity, you're going to want to do more than say thank you. Eventually, you're going to want to at least in some small way, if you can, reciprocate. And here, this big, massive building full of blessings has been poured out on us, and he's been tracking it through these first 11 chapters. And he says, in effect, I've got a little favor to ask of you. I've got a little something to ask of you. By the time we get here, we should be feeling the same way. In Romans 12, verse 1, that the Apostle Paul is feeling and expressing how he feels. In Romans 1, verse 14, he says, I'm a debtor. I owe so much. I have moral obligations. Notice the Apostle Paul in this scripture does not crack the whip. He's not berating, but he's urging, he's pleading on a reasonable basis of those blessed truths. Don't you know this was heavy? For those hearing those words for the first time, sacrifice. What are you talking about? Not animals. I mean, you're not talking about land. You're not talking about what Jesus did for us. You're talking about us. Present our bodies. Living sacrifice is a paradox. In other words, that which is sacrificed by the very meaning of the word is dead. It was, however, a spiritual message. Tricky thing about living sacrifices. Here's one of the big issues. When you went to offer an animal sacrifice to that land and you killed it, it wasn't going anywhere. But a living sacrifice has this natural tendency to slither off the altar and wander away from the altar. And that's when we get ourselves into trouble. And we are not what we should be. What's a sacrifice? It's an act of slaughtering an animal or a person or surrendering a possession as an offering to God or to a divine or supernatural figure. Today's sacrifice also means an act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important or worthy. That's what God expects of us. Mark 8, 34. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Everybody's going to have to lose something. And you can sacrifice for the Lord now. You can offer yourself for the Lord now or else you can sacrifice eternity. And that's the message. There's so much more that we can talk about. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. There's been a major change that's taken place here. There's so many ways you could talk about this. They had the temple. 
place. And then they had the most holy place. In the most holy place, they had this Ark of the Covenant made of acacia wood, but then covered with gold. And then they had the they had the Aaron's rod that budded, manna, and the Ten Commandments on the inside of it. And on the top of it uh, were these two cherubim. Their wings were touching. And there was supposed to be the presence of God. It was such an extremely holy place that only one man could ever go in there. It was the high priest. And he could only go in one day. One day a year. They were told him. We don't have that anymore. You just, we just read in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. As a Christian, I'm a temple. I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. This was like the innermost area here. And that's where God wants to be. He wants to be right here in your heart. We're, we're here when we come together. We're not just going through the motions. Our whole heart's in it. We're offering up to God the worship. The fruit of our lips is a sacrifice. Hebrews 13, verse 15. But we're on a constant basis looking for ways to offer ourselves as a sacrifice. And if we do that, isn't it true that a lot of the difficulties that happen in our marriages, both, but even if one of us gets that, we're going we're gonna to wipe away a lot of those difficulties. And our relationships within the body, we can work through anything. And with other congregations, whatever it is that we struggle with, and whatever it is that Satan sometimes gets a hold of us, that sin that so easily besets us, we can beat the devil. We can beat the flesh. Let's remember, though, it's going to be all upon the altar. What if there's someone here tonight that hasn't taken that step? They haven't contacted the blood of Christ. Beautiful scripture teaches that. Romans 6, verse 3 through 5. You know, we've got to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Mark 16, 16. We've got to repent. Acts 2, 38. We've got to confess. Acts 8, 37. But you know, we're never told, as important as each of those are, we're never taught that through those steps we contact the blood of Christ. But we are told we contact the blood of Christ through baptism. Culmination. All those things leading up to, and that's when it happens. It's when we contact Christ. Blood. Because that's where His blood was shed. It was in His death. Not His literal blood. But figuratively speaking, through his death. Or tonight. Have you not been buried with Christ in baptism? I don't want you to do so. We can rejoice with you, the angels in heaven, as you rise to walk in your survival. Maybe you've gotten too far, not just off the altar, but you've gotten so far away from the altar that you're not right with God. It's a private matter. Certainly, you're a priest. Go through your high priest. Ask the Father for forgiveness, repenting of your sin, confessing your sin, praying. Because of the public nature, we provide you the opportunity tonight to make those things right. We can help you tonight. Won't you come? Always stand. Always stand.